If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, preparations are apparently underway to charge and prosecute Canadian ISIS fighters who, for now, are being held by our Kurdish allies. Are we ready to take these cases on? Also, the case for harm reduction. We hear from one expert on why supervised consumption sites are so crucial in dealing with the opioid epidemic. As well as we mark the 30th anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre, a look at where things stand between Canada and China. Plus, an interesting new survey on whether Albertans and other Canadians still believe in Confederation. There's been a lot of talk, a lot of speculation, a lot of debate regarding Canadian foreign fighters, specifically those who have gone abroad to fight for ISIS. Specifically, what do we do with them? Now, we've certainly heard somewhat anecdotally, but but there seems to be evidence suggesting that there have been some who, uh, of their own accord, have returned to Canada, managed to get back into the country. It's tough to pinpoint exactly how many of those there are. And to what extent intelligence agencies or law enforcement might be keeping tabs on them. But there are a few dozen Canadians who are being held by our allies, the Kurds. And in fact, the Kurds have asked for us and and other countries as well uh, to take them back, take back our nationals. Up until now, the government's been more than happy to just kind of not take those phone calls, basically, to ignore those requests. Because it's not a problem we want to take on. It's probably, though, one we're inevitably going to have to take on. In fact, the Americans have been putting pressure on Canada and European countries to take back their nationals. Now, behind the scenes, it sounds as though there have been a lot of discussions about what to do, to have some kind of a plan that we can't just let these people come back uh, and just, you know, send them on their way. Uh, So scoop today from Global News. The RCMP is looking into whether war crimes laws can be used to prosecute these Canadians who are being detained in Syria over their alleged involvement in the so-called Islamic State. National security investigators are exploring not only whether terrorism charges are warranted, but also whether crimes against humanity and war crimes act charges could apply. Now, these kinds of prosecutions are quite rare in Canada, but on the surface, it seems quite logical that, that it would apply here, given what we know about ISIS, their tactics, their, their ideology, and what they've set out to do. So, is this the way to go? How else do we deal with these Canadian nationals? Uh, joining us uh, for some thoughts on all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program, Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, fellow with the University of Ottawa Centre for International Policy Studies, uh, also a digital fellow with the Montreal Institute for Genocide Studies at Concordia University, author of several books, including one pertinent to this conversation, Western Foreign Fighters, The Threat to Homeland and International Security. Phil, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. My pleasure, Rob. Thanks for having me on. All right, what would you make of this news? Uh, are, are you somewhat surprised, maybe, that, that things are going in this direction? Well, I, I am and I'm not. You, you made the point very well in your introductory remarks that, 
You know, this issue of what to do with Canadians who deliberately, voluntarily went to fight with Islamic State and other terrorist groups in Iraq and Syria over the past five to six years is an issue that the government is struggling to figure what to do about this. And I think especially in an election year, no government wants to sort of expend Herculean efforts to bring these guys home because what if something goes bad in terms of an attack? What if you're forced to release them? It looks bad on you. You you seem to be soft on terrorism. So I I think the term I've been using for the past couple of years is the government's ragging the puck on this one until such time as it's forced to make a decision, which means that the RCMP, which would be the, the agency responsible for investigating and eventually arresting and laying charges in this case, has to figure out how do you go about doing that. And I think that the bottom line is this is a really hard problem to figure out. It's not as easy as, well, just lock them up, throw away the key. We have a judicial process here in Canada, and we have to follow it. Well, because, yeah, as you say, the RCMP, they're they're not the ones to make the decision about how to proceed. But if all of a sudden then we make the decision that, yes, let's arrest, let's charge, let's prosecute these individuals, and we've got to start laying the groundwork for that, don't we? Well, absolutely. And the groundwork involves the accumulation of evidence. And it's one thing to say, yes, they joined Islamic State or they posted something on Facebook or we have a human source that says they left to go to fight with, with, with this terrorist group. How do you prove that in Canadian court? How do you prove that to the high standards our courts have? So on the one hand, it's, it, it, it's really easy. We know these guys did this, but proving it in a court of law is a very different matter. And I think on the, on, and to, to complicate things, Rob, I don't think the, the prosecution wants to lose too many cases in this regard. So if you go to court and it's not strong enough and the judge throws it out, then you, you lose both ways. In the sense, that you haven't gained a prosecution, and you've got somebody who definitely has spent time with a terrorist group who is now free and at large. Then what do you do with them at that point? Yeah. What do you make of the argument, Phil, that even if a case stands a chance of losing, that there's something to be said for bringing it forward, that there's there's a message to be sent to these individuals that we're not just going to let all of this go? I mean, it's it, typically, look, if, if there's not a chance of a conviction, that's the kind of thing that, that a Crown prosecutor would, would just stop in its tracks. But, in, you know, this has such larger, important issues, I, I think, wrapped up in it. No, I, I agree with you 100%. I think that anybody who left this country to join Islamic State or any other group that fought in Iraq and Syria as a terrorist group must, in fact, be charged and brought to trial. What charges and how you do that, that's the issue we have to resolve. But I don't think that anyone should get away scot-free with this. I also am getting sick and tired of hearing people, oh, I didn't know what I was doing, or I didn't know what was happening in Iraq, or I didn't know the Islamic State stood for this. That's complete crap. Anybody who left this country in 2012, 2013, 2014 knew exactly what was going on and knew that the Islamic State and, and groups like that were not the Boys and Girls Club. So don't give me this line that you, you, you're ignorant and therefore ignorance, you know, as they say, ignorance is no protection from the law, right? Just because you don't know the law doesn't mean that you're not subject to it. So I, I agree with you 100%. I think that something must be done, but it's that something. That, that's where the devil's in the details. And that's where I think we're struggling with, you know, what charges do we lay and, then, and, do, and can we, in fact, gather evidence in a land like Syria and Iraq, which is a war-torn land, how do you um, run sources? How do you collect this kind of information that stands the test of a Canadian court? So as I said, this is a really hard issue, but it has to be done. Yeah, it is. And you know, obviously when we have these foreign fighters, you know, they're, they're slipping across borders. It can be tough to track even their travel patterns to, to know for sure that they were there. At least in this instance, and the individuals that the Kurds are holding, they were apprehended on the battlefield. We've got some evidence about the fact that they were there. Uh, the fact that they were fighting. But, I mean, what kind of a threshold do we need to get to, Phil? What do we need to be able to prove in court? 
Yeah, those are really good questions, Robin, and, and I'm, I'm certainly not a legal expert. One thing that Australia has done is really interesting. They made it an offense merely to travel to that particular part of the world, irrespective of what you did there, whether you were actually joined a terrorist group, supported a terrorist group, the fact that you left the country and, and deliberately sought to get to that area of the world, which everyone knew was, was basically in the hands of a terrorist group. Everyone knew that multiple terrorist groups were operating. That in and of itself became an offense under Australian law. I'm not sure what success they've had with that law, but it's an interesting approach because what it does is says, we don't have to prove you join ISIS. The fact that you went to that area, one can assume that that's the reason why you went. Again, that, that's a very odd law to have a, you know, to put on the books, but it's a, it, it's a, it's a novel approach, I would say, that not sure we should consider it here, but I think we have to get creative because we do want to bring these people to court. We want to charge them. We want them to have to pay for the crimes they committed. Well, yeah, and we've got this strange situation here where we, we've had some success in prosecuting people who have attempted to leave. Uh, it's it's proven to be much more difficult to deal with those who were actually successful in leaving. It seems like a bit of a, a paradox or a contradiction in our legal system. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Um, I, I guess... Yeah, that's a really hard one to answer. But we've also had some failures, right? We've had we've had cases thrown out. There's a case in Quebec City where a young couple that we knew that were going to go and fight with Islamic State, they had their case actually. They were both acquitted. So that sent the message that, well, how serious are we here in Canada? You know, Rob, the bottom line is I'm not sure how serious the courts are about terrorism in Canada. You know, I worked at CSIS for a very long time on a lot of counterterrorism cases. And on many occasions there have been acquittals or cases that have been thrown out. And I can tell you, as a former counterterrorism guy, that's very, very frustrating to, to expend this effort to prevent, provide the information that indicates these people were, in fact, threats to public safety and to have the whole thing fall at the last second. I understand Canadian law. I understand there has to be a judicial process. But I don't know. Sometimes I, I do wonder if, in fact, we're taking ter- terrorism that seriously. And, you know, you make a really good point that it should be easier to prosecute those that actually did go and, and came back. And for some reason, we're struggling with this, and it's not clear to me as to why we are, but something has to be done, because I think Canadians are going to demand that these guys face justice. Otherwise, what's the point? Yeah, exactly. Uh, What do you make of the argument, though, that maybe given the international nature of this, the fact that there are are foreign nationals from multiple countries, even the conflict itself, you know, sort of transcends Syria and, and Iraq, that maybe what we need is kind of an international tribunal of sorts where, where we could put these individuals on trial and, and work with our allies in, in doing this cooperatively. Is there a case to be made for that? There is and there isn't. And this is an idea the Swedes are really hot on right now, creating an international tribunal in Iraq and Syria to try these guys. I think the idea is great in principle, but I'll give you one simple counterexample, uh, Rob. What about the International Criminal Court in The Hague? That one took, what, 25 years to convict Ratko Mladic? He was one of the Bosnian massacres uh, during the, the Bosnian Civil War in the 90s. Yeah. 25 years it took to, to finally convict him. So first of all, how long will it take to create this court? Who's going to sit on it? What kinds of evidence will they hear? And in fact, how long will it take for these cases to, to run their way through? So I, I guess a wonderful idea in theory, but I think the devil again is in the details. And are people going to be patient enough to wait? five, six, seven, ten years for prosecutions to, to succeed and get and, and finally get guilty verdicts. That's an awful long time to wait. And you know as well as I do, Rob, the longer things, you know, keep going, the shorter our memories get. And we think, well, what was that war in Iraq all about ten years ago? Mm-hmm. So I think that the, the idea is, is a good one, but I do think it would be very, very complicated. And I'm not sure, I haven't seen a lot of take up on the Swedish idea so far. I'm not sure where Canada stands on that. But I think it would be a very, very large effort, and I'm not sure it can be done in a, in a reasonable amount of time. 
Well, yeah, as you say, a lot of a lot of dilemmas around this issue. Uh, we'll see how it all plays out. Phil Moore at uh, BorealisThreatAndRisk.com. Really appreciate your insight here. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Rob. Thanks Take for care. having me. Uh, Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. Uh, as mentioned, he's a, a fellow with the University of Ottawa Center for International Policy Studies, also with the Montreal Institute for Genocide Studies at Concordia University, author of several books forthcoming. Uh, this year, When Religion Kills, How Extremists Justify Violence Through Faith. So his thoughts on, on this dilemma that Canada and, and other Western countries are facing. What do we do with these individuals? Well, based on some of the rhetoric we'd previously heard, maybe it's not a surprise that Alberta's new government is going to take a different approach with regard to harm reduction and consum- supervised consumption sites specifically. Here's the story today from the Canadian press. Premier Kenny is rejecting accusations that he's putting vulnerable Albertans at risk by freezing funds for proposed new supervised consumption sites. Kenny made the comments Monday as the opposition labeled the freeze part of a government plan not only to cancel the proposed sites, but to cancel existing ones in Edmonton, Calgary, and Lethbridge. Kenny said his government is committed to helping people addicted to opioids and is earmarking an extra $100 million over the next four years as part of a mental health and addiction strategy. But Kenny said his government will also follow through in a campaign promise to study the effects of supervised drug centers on surrounding communities, adding that the sites have to work to everyone's benefit. Now, certainly there's been debate here in Calgary about the impact of the supervised consumption site uh, at the Sheldon Schumer Health Center and what impact that has had on the community. And is that an indictment of this approach if there are problems that have arisen in, in this community? Well, joining us to talk more about the importance of harm reduction and how we need to view this question. Very pleased to welcome to the program uh, one of Alberta's uh, leading addiction specialists, Dr. Hakeek Varani. He's an assistant clinical professor at the University of Alberta's Department of Medicine and the Division of Prevention Medicine. He's also medical director at the Metro City Medical Clinic in Edmonton. Dr. Varani, thank you for joining us here. Hi, Rob. Uh, so what do you make of the decision then to, to freeze this funding and, and review the impact of these sites? I mean, it's it's more than disappointing. Um, one of the most Im- uh, important tools in addressing an epidemic of um, fatal overdoses is harm reduction. And one of the key interventions that we have in the basket of harm reduction services is supervised consumption. And we know from 2018 alone um, in overdose prevention site and uh, supervised consumption services, we have seen a reversal of almost 2,600 overdoses. Um, And in fact, just recently in British Columbia, um, a reduction in what would have been 3,000 more overdose deaths is attributable to harm reduction services alone. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I I understand that um, people uh, who are not uh, deeply involved in um, responding to this crisis may conflate the idea that this is an epidemic of addictions with the reality that this is an epidemic of deaths associated with the toxic drug supply. But it is indeed an epidemic of fatal overdoses. And uh, it it, it sounds like common sense to say, well, let's just really heavily invest in um, addiction treatments. But, um, you know, we need to see um, improved investments in addiction treatment while also providing safe and secure environments for people who currently use substances so that they don't die from using them. Right. Well, and I suppose the, the two go hand in hand to some extent, but you're right. I mean, to, to, it's important to describe what it is we're trying to tackle. And if we view it then as a fatality crisis, mm-hmm. then first and foremost, it's about saving lives. 
Absolutely. Um, you know, and, and a prerequisite to a quality of life and a prerequisite to recovery from addiction is to be alive. And, you know, it, it, I think a lot of people forget that most Canadians use some substance. Um, and many Canadians uh, in the course of their life experience some struggle with the substances, usually alcohol, but also other drugs. And um, the likelihood of experiencing some problem with substances doesn't really depend on the substance. I mean, alcohol is about as addictive as uh, cocaine salts. The difference between what's happening in the current overdose crisis is that the people who are using opioids because of the toxic supply are much more likely to die from that substance use than people who use other substances the other reality that I think that's important is that most people who have had troubles with substances at some point in their life no longer do later on in their life. And most of those people who recover from what would have been criteria for addiction required no medical intervention in order to achieve that recovery. And we're not sure what it is in people's lives necessarily that um, results in addiction recovery, but what we do know is that if they're hurt by their substance use, um, the likelihood of of recovery from addiction is lower, especially if they're dead. You can't recover right. if you're dead. Well, yeah, and that's such an important point. Uh, the government seems to be taking the approach, though, that, that that it's addiction that leads to overdoses, and therefore yeah. we need to focus entirely or largely on treating and preventing addiction. So what, what's what's the flaw in that argument? Well, it's not a flawed argument in that, you know, you're right, that these things go hand in hand, and nobody who's an advocate for harm reduction um, is uh, opposed to seeing improvements in the access to evidence-based addiction treatments. In fact, you'll find that the advocates for addiction treatment are strongly um, harm reduction advocates as well. I think where we get into um, difficulty is in political rhetoric, um, you know, arguments are simplified, you start to straw dog each other's arguments and suggest that they're mutually exclusive, that mm-hmm. you either believe in, quote-unquote, enabling people to use drugs um, or you believe in um, hoping for a better tomorrow for them where they won't use drugs at all. Um, in reality, many people who attend harm reduction services have an improved likelihood of accessing um, addiction treatment services. And we've certainly seen that clinically, where many of the entry points for people um, who seek out further addiction treatment um, was a harm reduction service, including a supervised consumption site. So it's not about enabling drug use. It's about enabling life as a prerequisite to quality of life. Right. It's an entry point to the healthcare system, essentially. Absolutely. And, you know, you, you won't hear any shortage of stories of, of people who um, are using substances who have had bad experiences with conventional health care. And this is a way for us to sort of have a do-over with many of them to say, you know, we've made mistakes before in demonstrating that we value your life, um, but we're going to do better now. And uh, we'll meet you where you are and provide to you those services that you may feel you'll benefit from when you're ready to avail yourselves of them. And that's what this is about. It's really, it's really just a humanistic approach um, to differences, and that difference being some people use substances for whatever reason. Right, and that, that gets back to the point you made where, where people describe this as enabling, where you have individuals uh, who are certainly at risk of a potential fatal overdose who probably need help but aren't yet really at that point where they're ready to commit to it. Are, are we just then sustaining the, this addiction? Yeah, so I think what we're, like I said, you know, it's, you're going to um, think of me as a broken record, but this is a really important point. What we're enabling is life, and, um, you know, 
some people use substances for um, uh, for reasons that are associated with social circumstance or mental health disorders or exclusion or stigma. Um, and unfortunately, the rhetoric around this topic is worsening those factors as opposed to improving them. So if we really are interested in providing environments where people start to think about a life without substances, um, then humanizing them um, and avoiding this type of rhetoric which pits people against one another and starts to think of people as junkies or you know, non-contributing members of society, um, we, we really need to get past all of that all of that rhetoric and start to think of each other as neighbors and friends. Well, I do notice that in the, in the debate. I, I think there is, to, to some extent, a troubling extent, a, a real lack of empathy, where you, you really start to just dismiss these people as, as junkies to the extent where maybe in, in some cases there are, there are people who, who don't really care that they're dying. You know, there, there might be. At the same time, you know, we don't want to dismiss that there are concerns of neighboring communities um, when there is something that was previously unknown, like a supervised consumption service, for people to start looking for and noticing um, changes in their community that may or may not have been there before, but now they attribute to the neighboring um, harm reduction service. You know, in the literature, um, it's pretty clear that social function um, improves around areas where new harm reduction services um, are initiated and established. Um, but I wouldn't dismiss, as I said, um, that folks in, in Calgary, for example, around the supervised consumption service, where I, where I used to live, by the way, um, will have noticed with an increased police presence um, that there might be things that um, they don't find to be uh, pleasant in their neighborhood. And we, we don't want to increase nuisance. We'd like to, yeah, for everybody to enjoy good quality of life. But I think that um, uh, putting a moratorium on and, and delaying further supervised consumption services actually worsens that problem of social dysfunction. Um, it's very commonsensical that uh, if you'd like to distribute a concentrated service population so that there's not hubs of activity, there should be more supervised consumption services in diverse geographic areas, um, which would be a total win-win, both for the community that lives around them, because there's not a concentration of activity, and also for the people who avail themselves of those services because they don't have to travel long ways in order to, um, to find a safe space to use their substances. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that's really important, you know, to try and remove the um, emotion from this and start to think, you know, as planners, how ought we to distribute these services in order to minimize any potential negative impact that they might have? Well, it becomes difficult in a situation like this because... Opioid addiction isn't necessarily specific to, to any one group, or, or obviously ge- it's not geographically specific, uh, even within cities like Calgary or Edmonton. No, it's not. You know, at the, at the outset of um, this epidemic, when it started to get more attention, one of the common things that you would hear is that many, many people who are dying in this um, epidemic are from uh, middle and upper middle class neighborhoods who are using alone in the suburbs of cities like Calgary and Edmonton. Um, you know, and those are not folks that um, you, people generally think of as a typical face of addiction. It really is a condition that can affect um, any demographic, any age group, um, any socioeconomic um, class. And, you know, and, and um, you know, I think that's that's really important to to note. But the other important thing to note is that many people who have died um, in this epidemic of a toxic drug supply didn't actually have addiction, um, but may have um, socially or occasionally used substances um, that unfortunately uh, come from a, a market which is not regulated, of course, 
um, and uh, it tends towards more toxic molecules in a prohibition environment. So, you know, that's another consideration in all of this is that we have made some progress in terms of offering life-saving harm reduction services. Where we should be at now in our discourse is how do we adjust drug policy in order to, to uh, improve the environments in which um, uh, people are living and some using drugs. And we seem to be going backwards at undoing some of the progress that's been made in the last four years. So I, I don't imagine that the new government has, has sought your input at all on, on this, uh, which is unfortunate. But what, what advice would you give them? Well, I think, you know, first and foremost, a, a lot of times when, when I have a chat like this with, with you or others, um, I'm introduced as an addiction specialist, and I am. But really the, the informed approach of, um, uh, of dealing with this crisis must be underpinned by public health uh, principles. Um, and, you know, I'm first, first and foremost a public health specialist. And in emergency situations, it is the singular role of public health to take leadership and um, take action that protects um, health and human life. And that should be our primary preoccupation right now. When you're losing two Albertans per day um, from every walk of life, and when there is, um, you know, extremely high burden on health and social services as a result of a dangerous drug supply, and the costs associated with um, emergency responses um, to acute presentations of opioid overdose um, are uh, incredibly high. We really do need to take um, a health protection approach um, on this and in the meantime start to bolster addiction treatment, which is something that we should have been doing decades ago. But, you know, it, it, it is telling that a developed country like Canada has seen a decrease in life expectancy in British Columbia and Alberta. Yeah, yeah uh, That should not startling. happen. And that's attributable to this uh, to this crisis. So, you know, I think we should keep um, very level heads, be bold and innovative and fast um, at dealing with this problem and really try and take the ideology out of it. Yeah, well said. Dr. Varani, I really appreciate it uh, as always. Thanks so much for joining us here today. Yeah, anytime, Rob. All right, take care. That is uh, Dr. Hakeek Varani, Medical Director of the Metro City Medical Clinic in Edmonton, also Assistant Clinical Professor in the uh, Department of Medicine at the University of Alberta Division of Preventative Medicine and his views on how we need to view this crisis and how we need to respond to this crisis. There were a few isolated clashes giving no hint of the carnage to come. While in the square itself, they even constructed a replica of the Statue of Liberty as the protests seemed to peter out without bloodshed. But on Saturday night, the army finally acted with disastrous consequences. It was to be one of the darkest hours in recent Chinese history, the sticks and stones of the students proving no real match against the military might of one of the world's biggest armies. Now from some of the coverage 30 years ago this week of the protest which led to the massacre in Tiananmen Square in Beijing. 30 years ago this week, in fact it was 30 years ago today, one of the most iconic images of the 20th century was captured. Alone and courageous Chinese man standing in front of these tanks. And still to this day, it remains a mystery as to what became of Tank Man, what his fate was. Uh, this is an event or a series of events that certainly the Chinese government is attempting to erase from the historical record. Uh, and they are able to do so with chilling precision. And a lot of 
Chinese, especially citizens that were born since 1989, really have very little understanding of what happened that day. And the Chinese intend to keep it that way. Makes it all the more important, I suppose, that we keep the memory alive of what happened to those protesters. And it certainly is relevant still to this day in our dealings with the Chinese regime and their approach to human rights. And certainly as it applies to the fate of two Canadians who are being held in China. Well, joining us to talk more about the importance of all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program Terry Glavin, author, journalist, uh, columnist for the Ottawa Citizen National Post, also contributing editor at McLean's. Terry, always great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Glad to be here, Rob. Nice to talk to you. Likewise. Um, by the way, before we'll talk about Tiananmen Square, but uh, interesting story this week about the fact that uh, the Chinese ambassador has been, I, I don't know, I mean, brought back to China. It's unclear exactly yeah. what's going on. What's your sense of what's happening and, and where there's maybe an opportunity for Canada to assert itself here? Yeah, no, that, that's a really interesting story, uh, particularly the way it broke. Um, I got word of it late yesterday afternoon. And uh, it didn't come from any an announcement from the Chief of Protocol in Global Affairs Canada. It didn't come from um, the uh, palatial embassy uh, of the uh, People's Republic on St. Patrick Street in Ottawa. It came unofficially by way of Ottawa's diplomatic corps, Lou He's a really a horrid little man. I mean, let's be frank about this. The mm-hmm. ambassador, he's a guy who said for Canada to, co- you know, to protest about uh, Beijing's kidnapping of Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor was an exercise in white supremacy, right. if you don't mind. He's just a creepy little guy, yeah. really nasty little fellow. Um, and he, curiously, he had an interview, I guess, yesterday morning with... Uh, couple of reporters from Canadian press who he likes to talk to because they tend to sort of softball questions with him. And he didn't say anything about it in his leaving. Um, he um, had an extended interview with Global, I think Global TV, didn't say anything about it. But there has been an invitation floating around uh, the diplomatic corps in Ottawa for the last few days, uh, inviting them to uh, farewell receptions to mark the close of Lou's tour of duty in Canada. So he's gone. And it's uh, he's be, he's being inflicted upon France. I don't know what the French did did deserve this, but there we go. <laughs> the interesting thing about that is that um, he uttered what might be described as sort of um, conciliatory uh, remarks uh, that the, that morning, actually yesterday morning, I guess it was, uh, where he was saying, you know, the Chinese could meet. Uh, the Chinese government is waiting to make a joint effort with the Canadian side and meet each other halfway. Well, the interesting thing about this is we don't have an ambassador. Canada doesn't have an ambassador in China anymore because John McCallum so disgraced himself that Christian Freeland was was obliged to fire him mm-hmm. after he, you know, he was uh, so unprincipled and out of order in sort of pleading Meng Wanzhou's case to the point where he seems to have confused his role here. It was more like he was Chinese ambassador to Canada. Anyway, we ditched him. And he, here's a guy, you know, who was former liberal, liberal cabinet minister, one of the most obsequious and kowtowing of all cabinet ministers towards Beijing. Before he took the appointment, he'd taken $73,000 worth in free trips to China, if you don't mind. Uh, you know, in other countries, that would be considered, uh, you know, he'd just be barred from the public service. 
Um, so we don't have an ambassador in China, and China no longer has an ambassador in Canada. And the this business about meeting us halfway will likely mean, okay, Canada, you present us with the credentials of an ambassador that can can kowtow as convincingly as John McCallum did, and we will uh, appoint an ambassador to to Canada. And then everybody can say, well, see, everything's sort of getting back to normal again. Right. And 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 this is this is the thing to keep and keep your uh, you really keep an eye on is there are sort of two schools of thought around Ottawa. One is that, I think, is the realist one and the sensible one, that there is no normal to return to, that there is, uh, that this, the the relationship was completely untenable, that Canada had become uh, uh, dangerously reliant upon China, that the degree of elite capture that the Chinese Communist Party over a quarter of a century had successfully played in Canada is such that they, Chinese sympathizers basically control the Canadian Senate now. You've got the largest block of the so-called independent senators is run by Yen Pao Wu, who has never said an uncharitable thing about China and has been an apologist for China. And in fact, when he was appointed to the Senate, both the New Democratic Party and the Conservative Party said it would only make this appointment would only make sense if the Chinese government had made the appointment itself. Then you've got the Conservative bloc, which is headed by uh, a guy who um, uh, is, you know, sort of not quite as as devastating. Pardon me, the Liberal bloc is not quite as 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 devastatingly obsequious as Yen Pao Wu, but is nonetheless the chairman of the fraudulent Canada-China Legislative uh, Association. And then you've got the government leader in the House, in, in the Senate, who's Peter Harder, who was the chairman or the president of the Canada-China Business Council and uh, was then absconded to head... Trudeau's transition team, <laughs> and uh, so you know it's it's a really really horrible situation that Canada has found itself in, and the attention to um, 1989 to the Tiananmen uh, massacre, actually a series of massacres. There were demonstrations in 300 cities across China, a nonviolent democracy movement that was crushed. Ultimately and finally, on June 6, 1989, in Tiananmen Square, perhaps 10,000 dead, we don't know. Um, people are starting to wise up to, you know, China's really been sort of bearing its fangs lately. And, uh, you know, the kidnapping and imprisonment of Michael Kovrig and uh, Michael Spavor, you know, taking Canada and throwing Canada up against a wall for having the audacity to to act on a perfectly legitimate request made under the Canada-U.S. extradition treaty in relation to Meng Wanzhou, who's one of China's untouchable uh, red uh, red royalty, um, and and this is this is what we get. This is this is the sort of thing that uh, you know any kind of independent behavior uh, on the part of a weak and uh, teetering uh, state like Canada, as far as its loyalties are concerned, um, uh, this is what it'll get you. 
And so, um, you know, in Hong Kong last night, there were 180,000 people who came out to commemorate uh, uh, 1989. All around the world, uh, the Chinese diaspora uh, and their friends and and allies have been attending vigils. Um, it's, It's something that I think, you know, we, we, we have to remember that if we claim to believe in the principles of the United Nations Declaration uh, on Human Rights, uh, that rights are universal, then these are human rights. Chinese people are human beings, and they are entitled no less than Canadians to the rights enumerated in the UN Charter. And similarly, because the Chinese can't communicate with us freely. They can't talk to us freely. And that in itself is a violation of the of Canadian rights under the uh, United Nations Convention on Civil and Political Rights. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, Tank Man, everybody knows Tank Man, right? The guy who stood in front of that line of tanks in Tiananmen Square, one of the most uh, powerful images of the 20th century. Um, people in China have no idea. They've never seen this. Most people in China have absolutely no idea what happened at Tiananmen in 1989. That man actually may be unaware of his own fame uh, throughout the world. Time magazine uh, named him as one of the most influential people of the 20th century. Yeah. He may, not, If he's alive, he may not even know that. Um, and so I think those of us uh, in what used to be called the free world, um, are burdened by a duty and are similarly at liberty to remember what the uh, police state in Beijing, in, in Beijing insists that we forget. And, and Canada, too, I think, has some you know, particular culpability in this because the country that reintroduced China back into the community of civilized nations after Tiananmen, when, you know, everything just, everybody's diplomatic relations with China basically shut down after the atrocities of 1989. In 1994, 25 years ago, it was Canada, it was Team Canada, led by Jean Chrétien, that started to open up uh, China to the sort of you know, global capitalism again. Uh, and once, you know, Canada sort of pulled its finger out of the dike, the deluge began. And, um, and, and this is, you know, something that Canada has become notorious for, uh, in the community of liberal democracies is its, um, complicity, uh, with the tyrants in Beijing. And it's, uh, you know, the whole Huawei story. Uh, you know, everybody, and the media is partly to blame for this. You know, we keep sort of reiterating in a, in, in subordinate clauses of sentences that, you know, we're sort of trapped between the United States and China and sort of, you know, some epic power struggle between these two global hegemons. Uh, this is actually rubbish. It was, and it wasn't, by the way, the Trump administration that started, uh, uh, you know, telling us to choose a side in this. The first story I wrote about 
Huawei uh, being investigated for violating UN sanctions uh, and American sanctions on Iran um, was eight years ago. It was the Obama administration mm-hmm. back then who was saying, you know, you got to keep away from this corporation. It's a it's a state champion. They, they have a, their, their history is littered with espionage and property theft. Um, and if you allow them into your networks, you will rue the day that you did so. Well, it's happened. And if you think Trump talks trash when it comes to China, you should listen to Nancy Pelosi sometime. You know, or, or there's a tremendous bipartisan consensus in the United States uh, about uh, basically backing Trump's belligerence mm-hmm. when it comes to Beijing. And as far as the national security issue is concerned, Trudeau and his cabinet, they keep dancing around this. You know, well, we're not quite sure. We've got a, you know, sort of super committee that's being set up and CSIS is involved in the RCMP and the Canadian security establishment and so on. Um, Huawei has, is, is already barred from bidding on federal government contracts in Canada. For years they have been. Huawei is already prohibited from any participation in federal communications networks in Canada. We've already had three uh, intelligence chiefs in Canada state publicly that Huawei is a, a, a an imminent threat to Canada's national security. We've had the Five Eyes Intelligence Sharing Community Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Britain, and the United States, everybody says it's, it's an extreme danger and an imminent danger. The Brits are kind of, well, you know, they've, their British telecom is ripping all Huawei gear out of its systems. But, uh, you know, they're, they're sort of out of with Brexit right now, so Theresa May can't quite make up her mind what to say. Um, so, you know... The other thing I think that people have to remember about Huawei is it's not so much a matter of, uh, you know, the nerds having failed to find some interesting and strange backdoor in Huawei cell phones or something like that. Fifth generation inter- internet connectivity is something like 100 times faster than 4G, which we've what we've got now. And it's all about you know, the sort of the Internet of Things and artificial intelligence and everything from, you know, uh, uh, access points through your toaster, your driverless car, the bus system, uh, air transport, uh, the stock exchanges. Um, and the, the thing to keep your eye on is a very simple question. Do we want Huawei to be in control of that degree of Canada's hyper-internet connectivity. When Huawei itself is a state-owned enterprise in, 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 every, in everything but name. Another thing that we keep repeating is that, well, you know, Huawei is a, an employee-owned company or, 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 or something like that. It's not. <laughs> or we, we talk about... Uh, uh, Meng Wanzhou's dad is being the boss, and he's the, the, you know, the, the chief executive officer. He owns 1% of Huawei. So when he says, oh, I won't let the Chinese government tell me what to do, it's not his call. <laughs> no. 
99% of Huawei is owned by a trade union committee, that's what it calls itself, that reports directly to the organization department of the Communist Party in Beijing. doesn't report to the Huawei employees. So, you know, that's the kind of state that we're dealing with here. And if you want to see what Xi Jinping is all about, run, rerun some of those clips that uh, the journalists uh, like, like uh, you know, Peter Kent's brother uh, and, and, and Jim Munson and others managed to sneak out of Beijing in 1989. That's the regime we're dealing with here. Yeah. It is, Terry, so many important issues. I uh, always appreciate your insight, and uh, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Sorry I banged on a bit there, but, you know, kind of <laughs> let me go. <laughs> well, and we appreciate it, uh, Terry. Okay. Wind him up, Take let care. him go. Terry Glavin, appreciate the uh, insight as always. There you go. Uh, author, journalist, uh, columnist, Terry Glavin, also a senior fellow at the Ronald Wallenberg for uh, Center for Human Rights. Yeah, look, he's got a lot of important thoughts on all of this, and I think that that really helps illustrate, you know, kind of these the, the stakes here. Well, it's not exactly breaking news. In fact, it was in a lot of ways front and center during the recent provincial election campaign. Albertans are feeling frustrated with Confederation. Frustrated not just with uh, politicians in Ottawa, but frustrated with our relationship with other provinces. Even though maybe that's, that's starting to change to some extent. A lot of frustration here in Alberta that, that maybe this whole situation isn't working out so well for us. Is it unique to Alberta? To what extent are Canadians frustrated or, or disillusioned with Confederation or even to, to the point of writing it off altogether? Well, some interesting new research from the Environics Institute on that question. A story here in the Globe and Mail. The majority of Canadians, for example, are in favor of equalization payments, despite a considerable decline of support for the federal program since 2001. The survey from Environics Institute found large majorities outside central Canada though feel their province or territory is not respected and receives less than its fair share of federal spending and has less influence on national decisions. So it's not just Alberta that feels as though we're not being listened to or that we're being disrespected. Albertans might argue that we have a stronger case for making that argument, but it's not unique to us. I want to try to get a better understanding of, uh, of where public sentiment is at. Joining us uh, on the line is Andrew Parkin, Executive Director of the Environics Institute for Survey Research. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, why is it important, in your view, then, to, to understand how people are feeling about Confederation and how people in various parts of the country feel about how they're perceived? Well, for, uh, for a couple of reasons. I mean, first, you're right. As you said, some, not all of this is, is breaking news. Um, this is not the first time that Albertans in particular have felt frustrated about the way the country's working. Mm-hmm. But, but it, I think it's important to, to track the ups and downs of this, to know what direction uh, we're going in. And, and, you know, particularly for other Canadians to know, for instance, we can see in this data that, yes, Albertans have been frustrated various times before, um, but some of these numbers are the highest, or if you want to phrase it this way, the worst they've ever been. I think that's important for, for Canadians to hear. It's not just rhetoric coming from one politician or another politician, uh, but this can you know, be, be shown to be a, a deeply rooted uh, sentiment that's fairly widely shared in the province, and as we might talk about, not just in Alberta, but nonetheless. So it, 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 I think it helps kind of document and ground the discussion. Um, but at the same time, another important part of this is, 
you know, sometimes the differences are not as big as we think. So sometimes it, it's important to know when one province or another stands out. Um, sometimes it's Alberta, sometimes it's Quebec, sometimes it's one of the smaller Atlantic provinces. But there's other times when we're not as different as we think. There's lots of ways of thinking about how the country should work that Albertans and Quebecers, for instance, share. And the research like this, I think, can sometimes show uh, as much how we're more alike than we think as, as it shows that, that we're more different than we think. Which, in a weird way, can be a unifying factor, perhaps. Yeah, that's right. I mean, sometimes, yeah, it's it, in, in a country like Canada, sometimes, you know, it's a little weird to find that what unifies us is it can be can be how uh, annoyed we're feeling. Uh, but uh, that uh, that's not, you know, that's not uh, the, the only basis of unity. But in, in, as I said, in some ways, uh, it does help uh, to know you're not alone. It does. Uh, the question of equalization is an interesting one because uh, certainly it's been a hot-button issue in Alberta for some time, especially recently. Uh, but it's, it's a big issue in other parts of the country. Why, why is gauging public uh, support, or lack thereof, for equalization kind of a good way of measuring, I, I suppose, the, the mood across the country? Well, uh, on the one hand, we can just track, you know, is, is the, uh, the rhetoric that's being coming out around equalization for some time, not just in the last election campaign in Alberta, but, you know, a little bit before that, certainly the Premier of Saskatchewan has had a lot to say about equalization. And I think it's important for, for Canadians who, who value that program, and many Canadians rely on that program. It's important to know what kind of impact that discussion has had. But also equalization, you know, it's not, it's not just a program. It, 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 to a certain extent, it speaks to a, a, a value proposition. It speaks to how you know Canadians feel about whether we're all on this ship together, um, or whether we're all in our you know each in our own individual rowboat. So um, I think it's also important as it's a way of gauging how we feel about each other, about our our obligations to each other, and you know so it, we can track it both in that you know very specific way. What you know is the number going up, number going down, but also you know just do we do we buy into the idea that we're all part of one uh, community, one larger national community. Uh, and, and in that sense, we're all looking out for each other. Right. So what, what are the trend lines that we're seeing then, if you look back at, at, you know, when this question or these questions were asked in the past? Yeah. So overall, you know, Canadians are supportive of equalization. Three in four Canadians um, support the the program. Um, now that's that's down a, a little bit. It used to be a little bit higher, a little bit uh, over over eighty percent. Um, so it's come down a little bit, but it's still fairly strong. And overall, it's it's strong across the country, even in those provinces that don't receive an equalization payments. Um, you know, a good majority uh, are in support. Alberta, of course, does stand out as the least supportive, but even in Alberta, there's just over 50%, so it's still a majority of Albertans would support uh, the program. It, it is in Alberta, though, and in Saskatchewan, where the, where the drop-off has been more profound. So when I said, on, if you look at the country as a whole, there's been sort of a little bit of a fall over the last 20 years. Well, that's not really a good way to summarize the situation, because in most of the provinces, there's hardly been any change. And in Alberta and Saskatchewan, there's been quite a drop-off. Um, from about, you know, a situation where three-quarters were supportive to now, as I said, in Alberta, it's just over 50%. Mm-hmm. Another interesting question is, is with regard to interprovincial trade and, and something that, that should unite us as a country, it seems very difficult for us to get any meaningful progress on interprovincial trade. 
Uh, and, and this su- survey suggests that maybe it's not necessarily a, a big priority for Canadians. I don't know. How do Canadians feel about interprovincial trade? Yeah, I, I think it, you know, it depends how you, how you phrase it and how you think about it. Sir, we don't really think about this as trade, but if you talk about people moving, you know, the ability to move from one province to another uh, in search of a better job, better opportunities, um, you know, there, that's really what many people think it means to be Canadian. Um, and there's strong support for this idea that people should be able to move across our provincial borders. But if we, if we ask it in terms of, do you think your, your province should be allowed to put rules in place that favor local businesses, um, then people aren't, aren't so sure. Only, only about one in four are actually against that idea. Hmm. Um, and uh, a little bit more, 30% are, actually, are in favor, and a whole bunch uh, over 40% are on the fence. They're not quite sure, right? So it really kind of depends. They're not sure if that sounds fair or not fair. So I, I, I think, you know, you could easily make a case, look, I, I want to buy some beer from one province and I'm not supposed to bring it into another province and most people would kind of nod along and think that sounds crazy. But if you say, I'm going to spend, you know, a billion dollars, two billion dollars on a, on a major infrastructure program and I want to make sure that some of that favors local businesses New businesses are coming up here. Maybe, maybe businesses that are owned by First Nations people in our community. And I want to make sure that, you know, if we're going to spend this much money, that some of it stays around, uh, people who are trying to, trying to build up their, uh, success. I'm not sure Canadians would see that as, as so unfair. Right. So it really depends on how you phrase it. But uh, the main thing that I think we can say is, um, uh, whereas moving people across the country is really clear cut, everyone's in favor of that. When it comes to whether we should, you know, just be moving goods across without restrictions or we should have some kind of way of favoring people close to home, then uh, it's really much more divided. That's interesting here. So, I mean, people see a need, I think, to to promote their own province's interests. So what is the takeaway then, you'd think, for, for federal leaders or provincial leaders? Provincial leaders might see this as you know, an opportunity to, to be seen to be standing up for their provinces. And certainly I think that was a big issue in, you know, choosing Alberta's next premier in, in our April election. But is it a warning of sorts to, to Ottawa? Well, I, I think there's warning on, on both sides here. I, I, it's, it's, it's certainly the case that um, the public expects their provincial leaders to, to stand up uh, for their province. But not at all cost or not to any length. Mm-hmm. Uh, we asked a question asking uh, exactly about that. Do you think your, your province should defend its interest all the way to the point of, you know, not without any regard uh, to whether it harms the interest of other regions of the country or the national interest? Or do you want your province to somehow find a balance, a compromise between its interests and the interests of other Canadians? Most Canadians are on the side of finding that balance. Um, so that doesn't mean that they don't want strong provincial leaders. It doesn't mean that they're going to accept whatever comes out of Ottawa. Not at all, of course. There's no way that that's the case. Um, but I, I think there's messages in the survey that says they, that they don't want their leaders to rush to confrontation. Um, uh, that they understand the need to balance different interests. We're a complex country, um, and they expect their leaders to come together and and find that compromise. And and one of the things that frustrates them, of course, is when uh, is when that doesn't happen, and they're just left with confrontation. Yeah, really interesting. Uh, much more at environicsinstitute.org. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. 
Thanks for having me. Take care. Andrew Barkin is executive director of the Environics Institute. Again, environicsinstitute.org. You can read these survey results for yourself. Some interesting findings. Talk back with more right after this. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.